The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my delight and pleasure to welcome Susie Chang to Food Sleuth Radio. We met in 2004. We were Food and Society Policy Fellows together. And in seven years, I have learned to love Susie's writing more than anyone else's. And Susie has a brand new book called A Spoonful of Promises, Stories and Recipes from a Well-Tempered Table. Susie, welcome. Oh, Melinda, it's so good to talk with you. Well, Susie, I don't know really where to start, except to say that normally when I interview an author of a book, I will be very careful to read the book throughout very thoroughly. (laughs) Only I realized that with your book, if I read it through, I wouldn't have any more to read. (laughs) And it's sort of like, I, I look at this book like dessert. And like a big cherry pie, which happens to be my favorite. And I thought, well, I could have a couple of slices, and then I'll have more to have later on. And so I've read some of it, but I've been sure to save some of it for later. That's how much I love it. Oh, that's so sweet. How did I actually find some of them improve on rereading, so oh, don't good. be afraid to eat it twice. Well, you know what? <laughs> I agree. I've reread some of these stories, and I totally agree with you. I get something new each time. Okay, let's start out with... Why this title? Isn't it hard to find a title for a book? It was difficult. I wanted to convey the idea that food isn't just about food. It's not just about eating, but that food goes along with all of the emotions we experience in life, the hope, the fears, the desires, all of the the anguish and the anxiety and the guilt, all of these things travel with us through life, and so does food. And I find that because food grounds us in reality, it's a wonderful way of bringing to life all of those emotions, the bad ones as well as the good ones that are part of our memories and part of our past. So, Susie, you've broken the book up into three parts, and one is your food memories from youth, the second is basically around how you eat today, and then the third is once-in-a-lifetime foods. And I really wondered, as I was reading this, and as I've read your work in the past, how do you recollect with such exquisite detail your food memories? Well, that's a really good question, because I remember the taste of food quite clearly, and I think that's because it's renewed every time you make the food, and I think you can't trust the memory to be perfect and accurate in every way, but you can trust the feelings that you get about it. So I remember how I felt about food very clearly. I remember the taste of the food very clearly. And I usually remember mm, maybe a handful of details very, very clearly. But after that, it's a little fuzzy. And to be honest, I kind of look at the snapshot in my mind with an imaginary magnifying glass, and I kind of zone in on it and, and try and reconstruct what it felt like to be there. So I can't vouch for absolutely every single detail in these stories, but I can kind of put together a composite from everything I remember. And, you know, the funny thing is that 
<laughs> my sister, who of course was there for a lot of these stories, she's like, I don't, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> right. That's what and, uh, happens. And in fact, one of the pictures in the book, which I, it's a picture of my mom and my dad and me, she says, hey, I think that's actually me. <laughs> so, so it just goes to show you that, you know, it's, it's, it's never necessarily perfect, but it's to the best of my recollection. Well, it works really well. And there's one story in particular where you're describing your mother going to different stores in New York looking for, I'm assuming it was wonton wrappers. Yeah, all different kinds of Chinese groceries, among them wonton wrappers. And you describe your experience waiting for her in the car. She Mm -hmm. would come and check on you and feed the meter. And you describe the imprint of the seat. (laughs) And and I thought, that is exquisite detail. And it's one that we can all relate to. Don't you remember that, those vinyl seats? Yes. being like, you know, and you'd have this thing stuck to the bottom of your leg. Exactly. And and, and you you bring the reader with those details right Mm -hmm. to where you are. And they seem like subtle details, but they're very important. And you also talk about aroma and how you can forget certain things in your life, but aromas stay with us, don't they? That's true. And you might not be able to just sit in isolation in a quiet room and remember it exactly, but if you smell it again, you know it instantly. And I think that one of the difficulties of our language, English I mean, is that we don't have a lot of words for smell and taste. They're very they're very few. I mean, basically, besides the basic descriptions, salty, sweet, bitter, all of those sorts of things, you have maybe a half a dozen, a dozen words that all mean, hey, this tastes really good. Right. <laughs> so I work really hard to try and find words that don't necessarily come from the language of food to capture these memories. And it makes it come much more alive to me. And then I find when I read it that I can actually taste and smell those particular descriptive memories. Well, it works really well for the reader, too. And if I were to describe this book to our listeners, I I really struggled. I thought, well, is this a cookbook with wonderful stories, or is this a storybook (laughs) with wonderful recipes? It's both. And you described something here in the introduction that I really want to share with our listeners. It's You say, usually the happiest fate for a cookbook is for it to live in a hard-working kitchen and to end up a bespattered, dog-eared heirloom in the hands of another generation of cooks. (laughs) And that is exactly what this book is. But you also say that you can imagine many other places where a book like yours might be happy. And I totally agree, such as the bedside table, say, because it's a reading book at least as much as a cooking one. And I couldn't agree more. Prior to the show, I told you that before you compiled these essays for this book, I used to copy them off from the NPR Kitchen Window website, which is, I should tell our listeners, that you also do stories for NPR, you do cookbook reviews for the Boston Globe, and many other reviews of books on cooking. But I used to download them and read them to my kids because they were so entertaining. And so (laughs) I want our listeners to know that, yeah, this book is chock full with really good recipes and really good cooking tips, but it's so much more. I'm so glad that you said that because I really thought of this book as a storybook. And I've I've always wanted to write. I, I, I don't like to think of them as articles or features or anything like that. They're really stories because I believe in storytelling. And, um, and I believe that 
storytelling is a unique way to connect with people and a way that's often lost. So I think I've kind of strayed away from calling it a cookbook because being a cookbook reviewer, I have very strong opinions about what makes a good cookbook. And I didn't even really want to compete on that level. I wanted this to be a reading book first. And then if people wanted to explore the recipes and have a cooking adventure, you know, by all means, they should do that. We should probably talk a little bit about what brings you to this point in life. And one of the things that gives you such great experience with food is the fact that you do review many cookbooks. How many cookbooks do you review a year? Well, it's hard to say because I do several different kinds of reviews. I do single reviews of single cookbooks, but I also do large roundups for the Globe and for NPR. So, And then I also sort of independently review things on my blog and for Eat Your Book. So between all of those, you know, it could be up to 100 or so. I mean, I receive probably 500 or 600 cookbooks every year, and I filter through them to review the most promising ones. Now, the last time I interviewed you, I had asked you about your own personal collection of cookbooks, because as a book reviewer, many books come into your home, as you describe. I'm sure some people are still have their jaws open with that <laughs> 500 or 600 cookbooks. But uh, how many do you hold on to? Well, I hold on to a lot. In fact, basically every year we buy another bookshelf. <laughs> because, like, I'm, I'm not good at letting go of books, you know. I think I mentioned in the book that I have book karma, and so wherever I go, there are always more books, and I sort of see them as children, and I, I can't get rid of them. But I do have a small shelf in the kitchen that's just the ones that I use over and over. So if a cookbook earns a spot on that shelf, then I know it's really special. Well, I like to ask you these questions about cookbooks for our listeners who have significant others living with them who think that their own cookbook collections are out of bounds, <laughs> uh, that there are, there are people at far other ends of the extreme. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, oh, yeah. You describe, actually, what you inherited from your father, which is luck, and that you do find free books, and that's how you describe mm-hmm. your luck. I want to ask you something else about your family, though, because you talk about noodles and your own cultural history. And forgive me for saying this, but I had no idea of the significance that noodles had in Chinese family history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to eat your noodles every year. It is a longevity superstition. And I'm sure that there are refinements within the myth about, you know, whether you can chew the noodles and stuff like that. But we just kept it basic in our family. It was like, you know, eat the noodles on your birthday and period. <laughs> just, just do it. <laughs> so, so the book not only tells stories about how to make these great foods and where these foods fit into your life, but you also learn a lot about the cultural significance of food. And I love I that about so. the book. Yeah, I really enjoy exploring that aspect of food. And I like learning a little bit about my own past, but I also really, really love delving into other cultures and learning something new. And being a cookbook reviewer, one of the things about this job is that we get to eat all over the globe, even though it's not an immensely lucrative job, so we don't get to travel all over the globe, but we get to do it at our kitchen table. So for that reason, I feel like I'm getting the best part of world travel from my point of view, which is the eating part. And, uh, you know, another thing I'd like to say about the book is that I feel that it was very therapeutic for me to write it because I realized that food was a path to wisdom for me. It was 
It was a, an area of my life where I felt I could make mistakes. And I was not really a person who was good at making mistakes before. I was very fearful, very anxious, and very perfectionist. And food's an area where you can't learn unless you make mistakes. And it's okay if you make mistakes. And I think that I would love for everyone to have this relationship with food where it becomes the anti-anxiety remedy, you know, mm-hmm. where it teaches you to live your life and pick up and go on when you have a problem or make a mistake. And I think a lot of my stories are based in mishaps for that very reason. Mm-hmm. I think your children are really lucky. Um, for one, they have a mother who I'm sure reads to them, but also has a mother who cooks for them. And I think that what prevents us from cooking, as you say, is this fear of failure. Well, Mm -hmm. it's not going to look like it does on the Food Channel, so why bother? I can read about it, but I can't do it. Well, you know, food is there to, it's so basic. Food's there to nurture you. Food's there to keep you alive. It's not something to be upset and worried about. Like, if anything is the one thing you shouldn't be upset and worried about, it's food. I have to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Susie Chang. She's a freelance food writer, and she regularly reviews cookbooks for the Boston Globe and NPR. She's a contributor to NPR's Kitchen Window column, and you can actually go online and search NPR's Kitchen Window for Susie's wonderful stories. She's also a cookbook reviewer for Eat Your Books. That is a cookbook indexing website. She has a weekly blog. She's just one of the most prolific and talented and wonderful writers I have ever experienced. And her new book, which is one of these things that I I will treasure for many years and, and definitely pass this on to my own children, the title is A Spoonful of Promises, Stories and Recipes from a Well-Tempered Table. One of the other things you have in this cookbook, it is sprinkled not only with practical tips for cooking, but it's also sprinkled with photographs. Oh, yeah. And, well, I love the photograph of you and your mother in your sailor hats. <laughs> um, I also love the picture of you and your daughter, Zoe, on her second birthday with oh, this yes. gorgeous buttercream frosted cake with rose petals <laughs> and strawberries. What a lucky little girl. Oh, my goodness. I wish I could have included the one from her first birthday, but the lighting was not nearly as good because on her first birthday, I remember in our family, the the first birthday is traditionally the first taste of sugar that the baby gets. Oh, really? Yeah, that was true for, for Noah, and it was true for Zoe as well. And so the first birthday cake is very, very important. And we have this picture of Zoe where, you know, she's looking at the cake, And she's kind of got this quizzical expression like, you know, what is this? And then we have a picture of her, you know, putting the cake in her mouth. And then we have a picture of her with her face totally smeared with frosting. And she's pointing at the cake (laughs) and saying, more! (laughs) Where have you been all my life? (laughs) Exactly. It was love at first taste. (laughs) Well, your children are lucky not only because you, you cook for them, But you, as you mentioned, take them all over the world through your cooking. And I wonder, do they sense that there's maybe something different going on in their house? Uh, They know. They're definitely in on it. And they they take some pride in that, I think. I mean, I think we, we have a lot of discussions about whether we're picky eaters or not because, you know, I think the standard's set pretty high here. And But both kids are really very adventurous. I mean, they do try one bite of everything. They're not required to finish ever, but 
you know, even if they told me they didn't like it yesterday, they still have to try one bite today. And, you know, they're, they're very, very good about trying really anything, even if it's, even if we're testing, you know, vegan cookbook all week, which is never a hit. Right. <laughs> the tofu recipes. <laughs> you know, even if it's nothing but ancient grains for a week or, you know, or, or some Middle Eastern cuisine that, you know, uses a lot of eggplant. They're game, you know. I mean, they, they, they don't hesitate to tell me what they don't like, but they're willing to try. And I really, um, I really admire that about those kids because I don't think I was like that when I was little. Mm-hmm. I think that skill of trying new things and that sense of adventure will last for them throughout their lifetimes as a result of what you're doing at the table. I certainly hope so. And I have a feeling that you did that with your own children. Yeah, you know, with my own kids, uh, we did this really fun game, and and maybe this is something to try, you know, over the holidays or with your own kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever done this, but we used to blindfold our kids and have them taste things and try to identify the flavors. Mm-hmm. And um, that might sound strange, but my kids would actually beg me to do this activity. They'd say, oh, blindfold me, blindfold me. Um, and I would, of course, never give them something that would be harmful or yucky to taste. But it was a wonderful way for them to hone in on their mm-hmm. tasting skills. You know, what are the spices in this food that I'm tasting? And what is this exactly? What am I feeling in my oh, mouth? exactly. Yeah. And there's there's so much to learn. And, you know, there's, that's something that I wish that, you know, or at least something that I feel that I'm still learning, I think, you know, being able to identify what I'm tasting in whatever it is, you know, and it's a lot of the time it's not very direct for me. Sometimes, you know, I'll be eating something and I'll think, okay, well, I know what this taste is, but just from having it in my mouth, you know, I can't really say exactly what it is. And then I'll be like, okay, well, if I were making this dish, I would put this in and I would put this in and then I would put in some fenugreek. And then I think, oh, okay, that's what I'm tasting. So it's kind of roundabout and um, elusive for Mm -hmm. me to find out. But, you know, what's really fun is that at one point, um, you know, my my kids are so young, but they've tasted such strange things. The um, my my first grade at the school across the street where both of them go has a medieval feast every year. And as part of the run up to that, they taste all these different. Um, well, they 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 do all these different activities in the classroom. And when Noah was there, I I brought in all the spices in my cabinet, and uh, and I had to make their own spice mixes. And uh, and and so that we could be kind of historically accurate and relevant, I actually sent away and got some grains of paradise, and I got some cubeb, and uh, you know, and I had all these things out and around during that period. And I remember we were talking about it at the dinner table, and so Noah's at this point six, and Zoe is one, and uh, and <laughs> and and we were talking about cubeb. And she has no idea what we're talking about, but she knows it's food. And she starts shouting, Cubeb! 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 How wonderful that you introduced these spices to the children. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, why not? Exactly. And you know, it's interesting about medieval times, you probably know this from your reading, but Spices were used as preservatives and mm-hmm. also to cover up spoiled food. Oh yeah, <laughs> which I, so the history of spice is fascinating. Yeah, we're lucky that 
you know, that we don't have to use spices in that way anymore. But um, I, I can't help but think that people then had robust immune systems. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you talk about, you know, I think many parents today face these challenges of there's a lot of junk out there, mm-hmm. and it's marketed really heavily to our kids. Mm-hmm. And back when we were young, I, I, I love this story about the ring dings. Like, you know, you're, you're in the school cafeteria, and your mother is not packing ring dings with you. But there is a kid sitting next to you with these ring dings, and you're, of course, very oh, intrigued. Yeah. And you talk about how that experience of, you know, the child with the the less nutritious food at school that's heavily advertised becomes very <laughs> appealing. And then how you deal with it in your own family. And that, yeah, your kids are going to have these temptations as well. Mm-hmm. But you also give them the ultimate temptation of a garden in your backyard. I really hope that they develop a taste for what's delicious in a very universal sense. So, you know, I, I think that I think that actually, despite the superficial appeal of junk food, it actually there aren't a whole lot of different flavors going on. It's right. actually not all that interesting, even from a purely aesthetic, non-moral point of view. And uh, and I think that if I've done my job right, then the kids will have been exposed to so much good food of so many different kinds that. It will, you know, it'll always be there, junk food, but it it won't constitute this temptation that's impossible to resist because it just won't be as appealing. Years ago, I heard Wendell Berry speak, and I asked him, how do you get people to care about their food? And he thought for a moment, and he said, let them taste it. And that is exactly what you have just described. Exactly. And, you know, I I should let our listeners know that you also, in addition to all of your writing and public speaking and and now being the author of a wonderful book, you also started a children's garden at your son's school. That's true. And um, actually, in, in this last year, it's been especially exciting because we managed to land a grant to bring a greenhouse to the school. Mm. And um, so we, we've got this enormous greenhouse. It's 18 by 36. The entire school uses it. They've got a bed for each grade. And uh, and we we installed it over the summer. We didn't start even planting anything till September, but we were able to um, start growing salad greens right away. So for all through the fall, the kids, you know, in their salad bar at school, they were able to have these fresh greens that they grew themselves. It's just amazing. And they were, you know, and because they grew them, they ate them. Exactly. That's just the way it works. And, you know, we're kind of shutting down now for November. I think we have maybe one more harvest before um, we just have to let the plants sit for the winter. But, you know, but then we can start again as, as early as maybe March. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been just incredible to see to see this green space that the kids really have come to call their own. And this truly is the antidote for all of the advertising that's directed at our children. It's it's letting them explore, just as you have done at the school level, so every child has an opportunity 
to really taste the kinds of things that you're recommending. And I should let our listeners know that, that Susie lives in western Massachusetts, and it's a fairly cold climate. Very so cold. <laughs> if you can do it there, I think it can be done anywhere. I think so. I mean, until this stuff is supported as a national level, and God knows we all wish it was, right. but until that, that happy day, I think, you know, it's very achievable to do this on a community level and to just find a way to make it work, even in a small way. Mm-hmm. Susie, you talk about not being really good at being able to identify favorites. <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> but I, I have to ask you, are there favorite stories in here? Oh, well, sure. Yes, I have to I have to say there are. I, I, I really do love that Rebel with the Ring Ding story. It, it, it just makes me very happy every time I read it. And um, there were, you know, there's a couple of stories in here that were kind of freebies for me. You know how as a writer, you know, you find that it's it can be very difficult to write. Mm-hmm. It can be very labor intensive and um and it's not always it's certainly not always inspiration. I think I would say that maybe one out of fifty stories that I write comes easily and just kind of writes itself. So Rebel with a Ringding was was one of those. And uh you know, so I I definitely feel a, a certain affection for stories that that don't give me a hard time, but uh, but also I I also really love um, well I I really love the Chanterelle story because it was the first one I ever wrote and it made me feel like okay this is this is possible this is something I can do and uh, and I love the squash blossom story as well the one where um, where I, I I was trying to poach and fries squash blossoms and at the end of the story I'm down to my last blossom and there's a I find a honeybee inside the squash blossom I just love that one it's yeah. it's a very gentle story but um but one I like and of course I think the one that many many readers know me by is the apple cake story that's a oh, favorite yeah. as well absolutely and I've I've shared that story with so many people it's it's beautiful Susie we we just have a couple of minutes and I want to give you a chance to to share something from this book that I may not have have prompted you to speak about. Oh goodness. Um, well, I think the only thing that that um, that I want people to come away with is just the sense that food is their friend. That food is this companion that we we tend to overlook, but it's there with us our entire lives. You know, recording our memories and doing its best to make us happy and you know and 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 helping us get through hard times as well and i i just want people to come away feeling that they're the hero of their own food story when they close this book mhm you know susie i'm a fairly harsh critic i think and i don't bring people to food sleuth radio lightly i i take a lot of care and i cannot let our listeners know enough how meaningful this book is. And this program is going to air near the holidays, and it will probably air again as a rerun. No matter when you find time to curl up with a book, I want to encourage our readers to put this at the top of their list, A Spoonful of Promises, Stories and Recipes from a Well-Tempered Table. Um, There are many stories that will not leave you with a dry eye. There are many stories that will make you laugh. You talk about the beauty of writing and food because it stirs emotion. And to me, a good writer, a good artist of any kind, 
does stir the emotion. So I, I want to thank you for stirring mine, and I want to encourage our listeners to have their emotions stirred up a bit too with this book. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Susan Chang. She is a freelance food writer. She writes cookbook reviews for the Boston Globe and is a regular contributor to NPR's Kitchen Window column. If you'd like to learn more about Susie and her great new book called A Spoonful of Promises, Stories and Recipes from a Well-Tempered Table, please visit her website at tsusanchang.com. That's the letter T, susanchang.com. I also want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Susie, thank you for being my guest today. Oh, Melinda, thank you for having me.